just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come together and to worship you. We thank you for the fellowship that we've had today. And ask you just, just to bless and lead this time as we look at this psalm. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 113, verse 1. Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun until the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is likened to the Lord our God who dwells in, on high, who humbled himself to behold the things that are in the heaven and in the earth? He raised up the poor out of the dust and lifted up the needy out of the dunghill, that he may set him with princes, even the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. Very short psalm, but very powerful psalm when we're going to, as we're going to look at this. And it's an exhortation to praise. And so it starts out in verse 1. And this is very interesting in verse 1. It repeats, praise you the Lord, three times. One of the things that we want to note is, if, especially in the Hebrew, if they repeat something three times... It's important. You are to take note of it. And in this case, he's saying three times, and actually it's about five times in the whole psalm that he says, praise the Lord. So this is a psalm that David is trying, I believe it's David, it's trying to make a very strong statement. Praise you the Lord. And this word for praise is to boast. Boast in the Lord. And it's a command. It's an imperative. It's something he says, you are commanded to do. Boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. Uh, boast, O oh, you servants of the Lord. So in case we forget who it is is supposed to be doing it, he says, all you servants of the Lord. And it says, boast in the name of the Lord. When we've talked about this many times, name. The name of the Lord is not just the physical, literal name. All right. When we get saved in the name of Jesus or we pray in the name of Jesus, it doesn't mean that it's Jesus or technically Yeshua would be there. If you wanted to have to say we pray in, in his name, you'd have to go to Yeshua because that's his Hebrew, Hebrew name. But it's not talking about the literal name. It's talking about all the reputation that the name stands for. And very important we understand that in the... In the 80s and early 90s, there was this big Yahweh-only thing. If you weren't praying in the name of Yahweh, you were not praying to the right God. It was really bad because Yahweh isn't even his name in Hebrew, but, it's, but they, they were really pushing that for a long time. The tetragram that his name is is Y-H-W-H. And the Jews do not have vowel points in that name. We, we to this day, really don't know how it's pronounced. And because the Jews didn't pronounce it. Whenever they would hit the tetragram in the scripture, they would, try, they would replace it with Adonai when they were reading it out loud. When they were reading through, they just realized it was the name of God. And even for a Jewish, a Jewish person in America, if they write God in English, they will put G-D. They will not put the O in there because they don't want the name of God to be spoken. So they will not even put a, uh, a O in the middle of that name. 
Yahweh is, they've determined, they, what they tried to do is try to make it pronounceable, so they took letters, just vowels, and put it in, put it in the middle of the tetragram, so that, but it could be any number of things. You could have a, a vowel in front of the Y, it could have a vowel, you know, who knows which of the vowels it belongs in there, so we don't know, again, how it's pronounced. And it was a big move in the 80s and early 90s, you know, that if you weren't praying in the right name, you, you weren't praying to the God that you were supposed to be praying. Every once in a while, you'll still hear it. But it's foolishness. It really is foolishness when you, when you get into it because it, name in the first place is the reputation and the authority of that, of that name. And as I've said, I heard it on the radio one time, and it really makes sense. If a police officer says, stop in the name of the law, he is not talking about the pieces of paper that sit on a shelf. He's talking about all that the the law represents okay he's not talking about the pieces of paper that define the law but what it represents all of its power and authority that's behind those papers okay so when we're praying in the name of jesus or the name of god or praying to god it is not that we're praying to his name we're in his name but all the reputation that his name represents and we keep bringing that up because it's so important because we were talking even this morning as we come up, what does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? It doesn't mean, like many Christians, in Jesus' name, we tack it to the end of all of our prayers, which is good if we know what we're talking about. If we go, God, I want to have a million-dollar mansion in the name of Jesus. Well, number one, you're probably not praying in the name of Jesus, because what are you going to use that mansion for? Now, if you were going to use that mansion to build a great big retreat to, to help, help people... That might be in the name of Jesus, but for the most part, it wouldn't be. So what does it mean to be praying in the name of Jesus? What would be building his kingdom? What helps his kingdom out? That would be something that you would pray for in the name of Jesus. We're to praise the name of the Lord. All, his, all of his reputation, you know, we boast in what he has done in our life and in others' lives. Be specific, but what do you need and why do you need it? Okay, it's like if God gave us a vision to start a orphanage, okay? I don't think we are looking to start an orphanage. Let's, let's say we were, God put a vision to start an orphanage. Then our prayer would be, God, we need a building that can handle 20 kids and we need uh, some workers to be able to run it and we need people to be able to cook and and all that, and those would be very specific prayers, and then that would be in the name of Jesus. Now, we're not looking to start an orphanage, but you know, this is what it is. If God gives you something to do, and you really feel that strongly about it, then yes, pray specifically. God, we want to have a vehicle that can run a, a, a transportation ministry to church. Okay, we start praying for that in a very specific way. You know, whatever it might be that God has given us, then you're praying in his name specifically. Okay, and it is true that we want to pray specifically. God, just bless me. Okay, well, I woke up tomorrow morning. I've been blessed. <laughs> so it is, yes, specifics, but we want to be careful even in specifics because then you get into the whole name it and claim it. God, I want a red, a red Mustang car with wire sport rims and it's got to have this, that, and the other thing. And that's where, that's where a lot of the name it and claimants go. You know, they get so specific, they're going to tell God exactly what they're going to give that they get blessed, not that he gets blessed. Be careful you don't go too far the other direction. 
I was talking to him this morning. He was telling me about the property that he wanted to get, that he was that his he and his wife were looking for. And he goes, these were the lists. And then he goes, and there were a few things I wanted, but I wasn't praying for. Well, what did God give him? Everything on his list plus what he wanted. God is a good father. He wants to give us our desires as well as our needs. But he's not guaranteed to get our need, our desires. Well, there are two sides to this, this question. There's the name it and claim it who want everything and feel that, they, that if they don't get blessed with everything and God gives them all of their desires, then something's wrong with them. But just on the opposite side is the other extreme. There are many Christians who live on poverty to the point where they won't ask God for anything and there's some spiritual blessing in being, being extremely poor and, and in need. And both extremes have a big problem. God is ready to give his children what they, what they want. Does that mean he's going to give us everything we want? No, because everything we want may not be good for us. But, you know, he is the good father that wants to give us good things. The point I'm making is either extreme is, is, is bad. If you're looking at God as the, the genie in the lamp, you rub him, rub him just right and all of a sudden he grants your wishes, or... We look at him as so stingy that he doesn't want to, that if we got anything, there's something wrong. And we need to be in the center of this at all times. You know, God has promised us he'll meet our needs. But being the good father, he will give us so many of our wants and many times, as long as our wants will lead to the building of the kingdom. And I've seen many people who have taken their wants and gone off the wrong direction as well, because they just get blessed and they forget God is the benefactor. And we just praise his name. God, thank you for what you've given me. You know, we see this over and over, that God gives more than we could ever imagine. And this is one of the reasons I love bio, the Christian biographies, because you watch what God does for people following him and how he blesses them and gives them so much more than they could ever imagine doing. And I read Zamperini's story and how God used him in the, in the last part of his life after he got saved. I mean, you know, the, the story of uh, George Mueller and how God used him to reach tens of thousands of kids that were going to be suffering. Uh, look at somebody like Praying Hyde, who just, his, his faith was. Look at somebody like Corey Tenboom, who's being used in, or was being used <laughs> in so many mighty ways. And hum, but look at the troubles that they had to go through to get there. You know, this is the thing about it. If we're faithful in little and hold out to God, he will bless us beyond all imagination. Somebody like Billy Graham, starting out with just a couple hundred people on his, on his evangelism now, you know, before he retired, preaching to millions at, at the time. You know, many of the pastors I listen to on the radio talk about how you know, they were headed down the wrong way, drugs and alcohol and everything else, and they got saved, and God has given them great ministries. Faithful in little things and get much in return. And you don't know what it is that you're going to have until you get there. The Christian radio station that is in this area, CSN, that, that I would listen to because of the, you know, they were talking about how all he wanted to do was bless his, bless his friend and be able to broadcast church services to their local town. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Oh wow! To their local town, they bought a three thousand watt station so they could just broadcast the church services to their to their local town, and now they're worldwide in their stations. 
And they're going, we never expected anything like this. I've heard that testimony so many times from, from people that do great things and are getting well known. Never knew that it would ever get there. So we want to be very careful that we don't get so into the poverty side of things that we go, God, no, no, I don't, I'm not going to pray big things. Pray big things, but make sure they're in the name of Jesus, that there's something that's going to build the kingdom. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And that just wasn't just talking about the cross. It is literally, he gets lifted up. And this is why I want to make sure he's lifted up in each of the studies we do and all the times that we talk about him. I want to lift Jesus up. He is what's important. He is what's in the whole value of everything that we do, and people will be drawn to him. And be very careful you don't go way to the other extreme. And, and you know, the, the problem with name and claimants is they usually will demand God to bless them. They're kind of scary when you listen to them pray. God, you promised that I claim this in your Jesus' name, and you're going to do this for me. And, and it gets very scary listening to their prayers. You know, you're, you're waiting for thunder and lightning to come crashing through the ceiling, you know, trying to tell the God of the universe what he is going to do. I will petition God for just about anything, but I'm not going to demand anything from God. Now, I will at times when things are going really hard go, God, I don't understand this, but you have promised that it's for good. I'm expecting it. You know, I will you know, turn the word of God in my prayers and say, God, you promised it's going to be for good. I sure don't understand how it can be, but it's going to be. You've promised you will meet all the needs. I'm expecting that. And this is one of the wonderful things. When four years ago when we came here to this church to take over the pastor here, you know, we couldn't even bring $600 in in a month to meet the, the, the needs of the church. And this year's budget is $2,400 a month. And most months we meet it and exceed it. God has blessed this little church in mighty ways, financially and spiritual growth and many things that are going on. And it's amazing the little things that are going on and how God expands. You know, where is he going to take this church? Who knows? I, I don't have any great desires to, to build, you know, a thousand people. It would be amazing if God was to do that, but I don't have any great desires. This town's too small to be able to see that. Well, we can draw from, you know, from other places. It's not, it's not that hard. But, you know, we're heard all over the world. This little church is ministering all around the world. You know, almost 8,000 people last month wow. clicked into sermons. All right, verse 2. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. And I love this. Blessed, adored, adored be the name of the Lord. Again, his authority, his power, his reputation. From this time forth and forever. So whenever you're reading this, it's from the present time on forever. And if you want to go back, it's actually from the past and and forever. We are to adore the Lord. I love getting together with other Christians and even non-Christians and talking about God. It's really fun to talk to non-Christians about God because you get the funniest looks, the funniest answers, the, you know, the, the you're crazy. <laughs> it's fun to talk to non-Christians about God. It really is. I used to love doing it a lot. I still love doing it when, when the outdoors are open. But just to tell people, you know, 
And I, like I told you, I used to go into, the, go into the restaurant and go, you know what God did for me yesterday? And they would all look at me like, why are you giving your good fortune to God? You know, because there is no such thing as good fortune. It's all God. God is in control. And we need to be able to understand that and be able to share that with others. You know, if you feel a little nervous about doing it with non-Christians, start doing it with Christians. I'd love to hear more of this. You know, more, more in our church, people saying, look what God did for me yesterday. Or what he did for me this last week. Testimonies are so vitally important. What do testimonies do for you? They encourage you. And I've said this over and over. It's wonderful to read the Bible. And we know that it's true. But you know, there is that in the back of your mind, well, that's what God did thousands of years ago. And believe me, I've heard people say that. Well, that's what he did for Gideon. That's what he did for Moses. That's what he did for the disciples. But what has he done for us? It's great to read the autobiographies or the biographies of great Christian leaders. But again, that's that same mentality. Well, that's what he did, you know, 100 years ago, you know, whatever, 1,000 years ago. But when we share what he's doing for us now, it really builds our faith that, yes, he was doing it for them. He did it for all these people I read about, and he's still doing it for us. You know, should we be able to get all of our strength from, yes, the Bible is true? Yes, we do. But I'm, I will be the first one to tell you, and I've heard it from many people, and it's really hard. Well, that's what he did back then. Talking with somebody this morning, they were talking about how the Holy Spirit was powerful in the book of Acts, but not today. And I'm going, no, he is just as powerful today as he was in the book of Acts. He's just as powerful as he was 10 plagues of Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea and the 40-year wilderness wandering and the taking down of Jericho, the mighty city that couldn't be, couldn't be defeated, all the battles of, that Joshua led, all the battles that David had with, with when he was uh, working up to be king, his battle with Goliath, he was ju he's just as powerful as he was with the with uh, lion's den with Daniel or the, the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He is still doing great miraculous works today if we will let him. Many people will not ever see God work not because God can't work, but because they don't believe that he will work in their life. We have to get through and out of this whole idea that God somehow has changed. He wants to do great works. He wants to heal people. He wants to still lead them and give them their great, great blessings and, and, and care for them. He is the same to yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. The Holy Spirit is just as powerful today as he was in the book of Acts, as he was all the way back to Moses' day, all the way back to Abraham's day, and all the way back to the Garden of Eden and Noah. He has not changed. And there is great power in God. All we have to do is have enough faith to say, God, yes. And this is another reason when you read these stories of the biographies of different missionaries and people used by God, it is amazing the stories that you will read how he has protected people. I love the story of the man who had to go through the jungle to get someplace, and they're saying, well, you can't go alone. There's too many gorillas out there. And he says, but God told me I have to go. And he made it safely through, and then he met one of the gorillas later on. They go, where did you get that army that you had with you? 
And he's going, what army? He goes, you had a whole army of big guys fully, fully armed to the teeth. He goes, no, I was alone. They saw angels and didn't want to bother him. Now, will God always do that kind of thing for us? No, but you know, he has that power and does still do those things. In the reading for the day on the Bible schedule, we read that Hezekiah was delivered from Shennacherib, and God struck 185,000 men dead with one angel at night. We serve a powerful God. We serve a powerful God. We read the story of Elisha on the mountaintop being, gets with, you know, being surrounded by the army and his, and his servant is all afraid. And he goes, open the servant's eyes. And he looks and the army that's surrounding them is surrounded. <laughs> we, we need to understand that our God is powerful and he wants to be able to show that power today. When we pray for somebody, we should expect their healing. When I was in College Park, we prayed for this man. He was on the heart transplant list, very high up on the heart transplant list. And we prayed for his healing. The next week, he came running around the chapel to, because he had been healed. And within a month, he was taken off the heart transplant list because he no longer needed a heart. Does God still answer prayers? Absolutely absolutely still answers prayers for healing, for, for things that we need to help build his kingdom. We need to understand the power and have faith that he wants to answer. Because most of the time, we, many people will pray, well, and you can just hear it in their prayers that they don't really expect God to ever answer. You almost hear the God maybe, if probably, maybe, possibly think you might want to do this. You know, they're not adding all those words, but you can hear when they're praying that there's a whole bunch of probably ifs, maybe, if you really are strong enough, go ahead and answer this. And again, we can go from that extreme all the way to the other extreme. God, you must answer this prayer because, and that's going too far the other direction. We need to be very careful and stay in the center between those two extremes. God, you are powerful for your glory would you heal this person or would you do this or would you give us this so that we can build your kingdom through these activities? We need to be able to understand the power that God has for us and act upon it. We as Christians act so weak so, so much that we serve this poor, insignificant, helpless God and we have a strong God who has great power and we need to be aware of that. Not demanding of him, but understand how powerful he is. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and all the hills and everything else in between. He owns everything. And he can bless us with whatever it takes to be doing his will. And as I was saying, if God wanted to build this church to be a thousand people, even though the whole town only has less than 300, he could do it. A quarter of our church comes from Kingman already, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> he can make hundreds and thousands come from Kingman and, and Chloride and Dolan Springs. Who knows where, what, he's got in, what he's got in planned? We don't know, and I'm not going to limit him. Am I expecting to grow to a thousand people? Not necessarily. <laughs> but you know, God could do it if that's what he really wanted to do. Of course, if we got a thousand people, we'd have lots of services or have to build a new building, but uh, it seems like we can only sit 84 in the whole sanctuary. <laughs>
if God was to bless us that way, then we would respond and, and be ready for looking what God's got in store. Uh, but, like I say, we live in a town of 300. I'm not expecting the, to have a church with three times the number of people. If God does that, that's fantastic. I'd be happy about it. And we would have to get everybody doing lots of things. Verse 3, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. I love this one. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, his name is to be praised or commended. God's name is to be commended all day long. Paul talked about in, in Thess, uh, first, uh, Second Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Here we're being told, uh, commend his name, talk about him. And we want to be very sure that what ends up happening is, are we talking about God at some point during our day with people? This is something I've said. You know, we're not to be necessarily talking about God 24-7. Every moment, everything I'm talking about is about God. But do you talk about God enough to, for people to know that he's important to you? This is what the biggest question for many Christians are. I have been with Christians who you spend an hour with them and God doesn't even come up in their conversation at all. A Bible verse wouldn't come up in their conversation at all. A godly thought barely might come up in their conversation. Maybe. We want to be very careful. How important is God to us in our life? Jesus said that out of the abundance of our heart or the treasure of our heart, depending on which gospel you're reading, we speak. If God is truly the center and most important thing in your life, you will talk about him. You will. It's just not going to be an option because he's what's important. He's what's filling your mind. The word of God is what's filling your mind. What has he done for you this last week? Is it filling your mind? And you share it with other people because it's what's important. And like I said, I have met the GM of the, of the TA where I first worked when I came here. And he asked me what I was doing. I'm going, well, I'm a pastor. And he goes, I just knew that would be the case because whenever you talked about God, you got excited. Which tells you two things. I talked about God a lot. <laughs> okay? And he was what was important and poured out of my, out of my, out of my mouth. Think about this. Does, again, does that mean you can't talk about anything else? No. You can talk about sports. You can talk about the hobbies. You can talk about the, the weather or whatever else. Again, it's one of those things that the more important he's going to be to you, the more he's going to come up in conversations. And I, you know, there's times when I go periods of time without talking about God because, number one, I'm being paid eight hours a day to not talk about God. I'm to being paid to do my job. But... In the breaks and everything, during the times I'm not in the, in the class or doing some instructive work, I talk about God frequently. That's great. But this is just what is most important in my life is God, and it always has been. I mean, this is not something, you know, when I say this to people, well, you're, of course, you're the pastor. Well, <laughs> yes, I talk about him a lot because I'm a pastor, but I've always talked about him mm -hmm. a lot. Okay, when I was a restaurant manager, I would come in saying, look what God has done this week, you know, and, and you know, it's very important that do we initiate, do people know that we're a Christian? This is what's important. 
how many people know that you are a Christian by your conversation and by the way you live? If they don't know you're a Christian, there might be something wrong. All right? Because that means you're not talking about God enough. Do you want to talk about him every, you know, you don't want the reputation of, oh, got to hide, that person's coming, they always talk about God. No, you don't want that reputation either because then you'll never get a chance to talk to him in the first place. But they also need to know that God is what's important in your life. Because I will bring God up. I will bring Bible verses up. I will encourage people in God, whether they're a Christian or not. And like I say, it's fun to do this to non-Christians because they, you get the strangest looks at you. I mean, you get the strangest looks at you when you bring up God to the non-Christian world. And it's just a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to be able to bring the gospel to them and present the gospel. If, you're, if you've never led somebody to the Lord, start giving the gospel out. <laughs> give the gospel out. One of the greatest privileges is to give the gospel out and be able to pray with somebody and have them accept Christ and see the lights come on in their eyes and the joy come across their face as they feel the weight of their sin being pulled off of their shoulders and Jesus coming into their life. Wonderful experience. Several times over my lifetime that's happened. And I'm not an evangelist. I just speak. And God will fill your mouth. And it's amazing what he'll give you to say with so many people. And everybody is always so afraid of being, you know, of sharing Christ with people. They're afraid they don't know enough. They're afraid that they're going to ask, they're going to ask a question they don't know. They're afraid that they're going to look like a fool. But you know what? I'd like to be a fool for Christ. If I look foolish, that's God, that's great because the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that perish. And we will look like a fool to the world, even when you're smart enough to answer their questions and everything. You will still look like a fool because they're not going to accept the answers unless God works on their heart. I have the answers. I can tell people, I can answer most of the questions that are going to come to me, but yet not everybody's going to get saved because they're just not going to listen unless God's moving on their heart in the first place. Our job is just to share the gospel and go forward from there. If I carried that conversation further, what if it's not real when he accepts? The most important part of that statement is it's not for us to judge whether it's real or not. That's between them and God. We don't want to pressure, especially a child, into making a prayer. Mm -mm. But we also can't be afraid of asking them to say a prayer and accepting Christ in their heart. Because I can tell you, I've talked to many people who got saved when they were four years old, and they were saved when they were four years old, and they know it. I also know many people that got a set of prayer when they were a teenager, and they did not mean it. And said prayers earlier on and did not mean it. Our job is not to determine whether somebody means it or not. This is the accusation that people like Billy Graham, Greg Laurie, and these big evangelistic crusades get attacked with. Well, many of them don't really get saved. Not our job to figure out. Our job is to give the gospel, give them the opportunity to, to pray and accept Christ, and then try to disciple them and, and work for teaching them from that point on. If they're not saved as we're discipling them, that will become obvious, and they hopefully will have the opportunity to finally ask God and truly mean it. But too many times we're looking, well, they might say the prayer and not mean it. What, what, what then? 
It's between them and God. Jesus has already said that many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And they'll go on all these great religious things that they did, and he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. We cannot be responsible for anybody's lack of meaning when they say the prayer. Now, if you're twisting their arm to get them to say the prayer, you've got a problem. <laughs> but if they voluntarily will say this prayer, then we just have to trust that it's in God's hands to make it real. The act of faith. Come to Christ as a child. Not understanding everything. And you know that's really the hardest thing when you're dealing with adults? Is they want to understand everything there is to know about salvation before they make the commitment to God. And the problem is you can't know everything there is to know about salvation. Even after you've studied it for 30 or 40 years, you're not going to know everything there is to know about salvation. It's simple enough that the child can understand it and act on it, and yet complicated enough that you could spend your entire rest of your life trying to learn about salvation and still not know everything there is to know in, in, at that time. Verse 4, The Lord is high above all the nations and His glory above the heavens. The Lord is high above the nations and His glory above the heavens. God is ruler of all the world, and he is the ruler. He is above all the nations, and his glory is above the heavens. You know, this is really a statement of how transcendent God is. He's in control of all the physical world. He's in charge of all of the spiritual world, and he exists even above that. Okay? This is what I was saying this morning. No matter how big you think God is, you're thinking too small. Because we think in the natural, he's, he's above all the natural. And he's also in charge of all of heaven, all the spiritual world. And he's even beyond that. Whatever's beyond that, he's in charge of that. Physicists are trying to tell us now that there are multiple universes. And I have no problem with that. You know what? God is in charge of all of those. <laughs> if there's more than one universe, he's in charge of all of them. He's that big. I have no problem with it. If there's, you know... He is bigger than anything we can possibly think of. He is above everything. And that's what this verse says. He's above the earth. He's above the, the heavens. Verse 5. Who is likened to the Lord our God who dwells on high? Again, he's just repeating it. This is, this is that Hebrew poetry. He's repeating himself. He's above everything. And he dwells on high. I love the word dwell. He rests. He rests on high. God is not up in heaven wringing his hands over all the things that are going on down here. Doesn't bother him in the least. <laughs> he knows what's going on and he goes, he's got the power to fix it if he just gets released in our life. God knows the beginning from the end. Literally the beginning from the end. Not just the beginning and end of our life, but from the time of the creation to the time of the destruction of this world he knows the beginning from the end and is in all the, all the places at the same time. That is something that is just an amazing thought to me. God is right here with us now. He's with Adam and Eve at the same moment and he's at the end of the time as he's going to destroy this old world and bring about the new heaven and earth. And he's even in that time. <laughs> How big is your God? How big is your God when you think about this? He transcends everything. I love verse 6. Who 
humbled himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. This is, how many people have you talked to that have this picture of God sitting up in heaven with his thunderbolts and lightning bolts or whatever, ready to strike men dead for their, for their misdeeds? And he says, he humbled himself to see. He is so far above. It is an amazing thing. God cares about us. Yeah. And that is such an amazing thing that we are so insignificant in the whole scheme of the world and God cares for each individual. He cares about our needs. He cares about what we're going to eat, where we're going to live, how we're going to survive. And he's like, it says he humbles himself and he comes and beholds the things of the earth. That's why Jesus came. This is actually a, a picture of Jesus coming down to becoming man and coming down to this world. He came to earth. He will look at what's going on. And I, and I love that they bring in not just the earth, but the heavens. He is humbled himself even to abide in the created heavens. This is God who created everything, who's above everything, and it says, basically, he deigns to come down to the heaven <laughs> that he created, and even beyond that, to come down to the earth. But do you realize what a, what a powerful statement that is? He is above everything created, and yet he rests in heaven. That's what the previous verse said. He dwells in heaven. And then, as Jesus Christ, he came and dwelled on this earth. As the almighty, powerful God... <laughs> and yet came, comes to see what's going on in this sin-filled world. But the real miracle that he's saying here is that he even desires to come down in the first place, that he even desired to come down. But he loves it. Well, he loves it, yeah, yeah. His love drove all of this. And that's why it comes down, verse 7, he raised up the poor out of the dust and lifted up the needy out of the dunghill. And that literally is us. Us as his followers. That he comes in and he lifts us up, number one, out of the dust, which we are dust. But then he goes even worse, out of the dunghill. Okay? Because we are sinners, before we get to know him, we are literally in a mess. <laughs> literally in a mess. More so than most of us ever realize. And this is one thing, the, the more you follow God, the more you get to know him, the more you get to see how awful sin is. To get saved, you have to begin to see how awful sin is. And that usually just goes into the reality, you know, I messed up and bad things happen. That's about how much, when you first get saved, that's about how much you understand the horror of sin. But you know, the amazing thing is, as you walk with God, and you start seeing things through his eyes, you start seeing re how really awful sin is. And usually what you see is not just the, the really bad, what we call bad sins, <laughs> we start really seeing how God sees sin as a whole. How awful gossip is. Gossip is so destructive to people. And the problem is it doesn't just hurt them physically, which means that they can be healed. Gossip hurts people at the soul level. Harsh words and language that people have said things, and people will remember my dad or my mom said this to me when I was young. They said I would be good for nothing and worthless. 
I have seen some people that are very successful in life that are still trying to prove their parents wrong in the things that they said about them. And they're successful. I mean, they've got everything. People would look at them and say, they're, but in the back of their mind is, you are good for nothing. You are worthless. You, are, you, you don't count for anything because that's what they were told. Gossip is so hurtful. And God is saying that he's lifting us up out of the, the dunghill, the trash heap of sin. He cl- cleans us up. He gives us his righteousness of Christ. And then he slowly starts teaching us how to be more like him. And the more we become like him, the more we see how awful sin is. We get to Jeremiah where we look at our heart and say, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? And it's a good thing God takes the heart of stone out of us and gives us a heart of flesh and then he fills that heart because our flesh wants to do the wrong things. Period. And we all know that. Our first instinct, no matter how long we've worked with God, uh, walked with God, the first instinct when we're hurt is to strike back out of the flesh. Always. The more we walk with God, the quicker his thought comes right on the, on the heels of that. And we might be able to walk in a godly lifestyle more often than not. But the first instinct is always the fleshly instinct. You said, what to me? How dare you? You uh, Well, I'm supposed to love this person. (laughs) And hopefully, before the words get out of your mouth, the I'm supposed to love this person comes in and you don't speak it. But you know, we all know for a fact that the, the worlds and the flesh is what comes to first, first thought. You see that person that, you're, that looks so great and, you're, and the, the first thought that pops into your mind is that lustful thought. And we said that the first thought is not what necessarily sin, but what you dwell on is going to be the sin because our eyes see things and react to it. We need to have the spirit following right behind that and saying, let's do this the right way. Let's be righteous. Let's be godly. And the more we walk with him, the better we get at listening to him as long as we're letting him crucify our flesh. Because the flesh will be the first reaction. When you smack your hand with that hammer, you know, your first reaction isn't to say, praise God, hallelujah. (laughs) That might be what you end up saying. (laughs) But it's not normally the first thought (laughs) that pops into your head. The first thought when you, somebody catches you in a, in a, doing something wrong is not usually to tell the truth and confess. It's usually, let me lie or make an excuse. The flesh needs to be crucified and, and eliminated. But it takes time. And God says that he will lift us up. And verse 8 says, That he may set him with princes, even the princes of his people. When you are elevated by God. Great things happen. Great things happen. I have talked to many missionaries that have gone on the missionary's field and they've just lived for God and then they get introduced to the prime minister of the country or some cabinet level thing and God does great things in them. Why? Because God's elevating them. Now, most of us in this country aren't ever going to get in a place where we meet the president, but you know, God can put us in places where we can do great things for him. Because it's him that's being elevated. We go back to the beginning of this psalm where we says, praise the Lord in his name. Are we lifting him up? Are we honoring him 
And when we do that in the little things, he will elevate us and make us a greater and greater example. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> you know like I said, I look at a Billy Graham who started out just a couple hundred people in his, service, his sermon, uh, <laughs> evangelistic ex- uh, uh, activities, and now before he retired, millions. We look at all these people and say how God used them in small ways and God elevated. <clears throat> and then I, verse 9, it's kind of an interesting. He makes the barren woman to keep house and lo, be and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. He makes the barren woman or the, or the mother, uh, motherless woman to keep house, which is a fancy way to get, say she gets married. Okay, uh, it's kind of an old-fashioned term, you know, doesn't sit well in our day and age. You know, you need to keep house. Well, I don't want to be a mother. I don't want to just stay at home. Well, you know, this is something that we need to bring back into a true statement. Being a mother is probably the hardest job there is to do. It really is. You're responsible for the raising up of children to follow God and to be godly children. It is not an easy job. Matter of fact, it's a pretty thankless job most of the time. And it's a hard job. And I understand why so many women today don't want to do it. Because it's a very hard job with very, very low uh, thanks until they grow up. And when you've poured into their life and they'll be able to say, thank you. Thank you for showing God to me on my lifetime. Thank you for helping me see God. And you may not ever get it from them. But we look at these mothers that have raised their kids in a godly manner. Now, the, the key to this is also, though, for us men, we don't get off the hook on this because God commands us to be responsible for the spiritual training of our children. Very important for us to get involved with this. We should be leading our kids in Bible studies. We should be teaching them how to be godly. Not doing things the way of the world. You know, lots of men love to get in there and teach their kids how to, to fish and hunt and, and play sports and all of that. And it's wonderful to do those things as well. But we need to be able to bring up, this is how you honor God in all of these activities. Because, unfortunately, most men don't honor God in all their activities. And I've seen it many times in the workforce. You know, I'm a Christian, I'm doing all these great things, but I'll cheat and steal and lie and, and, and whatever else in the work to get, to get my promotion. No. Live a godly lifestyle. How many of us have ever asked our, you know, just tell this person on the phone I'm not home. You know. And we're trying to teach them to be honest and truthful, and then we tell them to lie to the people on the phone. What kind of confusion are we giving to our kids? What are we doing when, when we tell them to honor authority, and then when, we, then when we get pulled over by the police, we curse and yell and holler about being pulled over, and the kids are looking, uh, I thought I was supposed to be honoring authority. We need to be very careful when we teach our kids that we need to live what we're trying to teach them. Is it easy to do? Will we make mistakes? Absolutely, we'll make mistakes. And it's not easy to do. But we need to be able to be a good example so that when the kids look at us, they say, my dad was a godly man more often than not. He honored God each day. 
And we're very good at having this multiple, I'm a Christian on Sunday, here's my hat for being a Christian. It's Monday morning, go to work, I'm going to be just as mean and nasty as everybody else to get my promotion. Oh, it's time to be, the, be playing sports on, uh, this evening, so I've got to put my, my sportsman hat on. And sometimes that means being mean and nasty to win the game. Uh, I've had coaches that taught people to cheat. You know, that's not what you're supposed to do. You know, as long as you get away with it and win the game, it's okay. No, it's not okay. Even if you get away with it, it's not okay. And here it says, he'll make the barren woman get married and be a joyful mother to their children. <clears throat> and this is so important. Do we have joy in our day-to-day -day activities? It is wonderful to have that joy in serving God. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And just to be able to hold him up in all of our activities, I think it's very important that we look and say that we're a Christian 24-7. When I get up in the morning, when I go to bed at night, and while I'm sleeping, hopefully. <laughs> if I'm focused on God all day long, my sleep is going to be more peaceful because there's nothing to be worried about. Now, I know there's some people that they worry about everything anyway. <laughs> but God is saying, don't, don't worry. Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And, you know, to tr truly trust in God is a wonderful thing because he is the one that can answer the question problems. He's the one that knows what's coming anyway. And we just say, God, I'm just going to rest. I am going to rest in you. You are my fortress. You are my defense. You are my shield. You're my buckler. Whatever term you want to use, he's saying just rest in him. And oh, the peace when you can just rest in God because he is the one in control. And to just rest. Sometimes it's hard to rest in him. When everything seems to be going wrong, it can be very difficult to rest in him. It gets easier with the more you practice it, but it'll never be simple. It gets easier the more you do it, the easier it gets. It'll never be the first thought in your mind. When your car breaks down in the middle of nowhere, your first thought isn't, God, you're in control, you knew this was going to happen necessarily. Uh, when you lose your job and it seems like everything, everything's going to go wrong from that point on, it is not necessarily easy to say, God, you're in control. It gets easier with each time that you do it. And you know what? When people start watching you stay at rest and at peace with God, it impresses them. They look at it and go, wow, how can you, you know, you're not turn, turning to the, to the bottle and, and trying to drown your sorrows with all this stuff going on. You're not turning to drugs and trying to hide from everything. They look at that and it does impress them. They may not know why they're impressed, but they look at it and say, you're different. And we need to be different. But again, it is a walk with God. It is a growth with God. It is not something you just become a spiritual giant the moment you get saved. It would be fun if it did happen that way, but it doesn't. We have to go through these activities and fail many times and then we finally get a success. And we go, hey, that was kind of nice. God, God came through. And then the next time you go through it, you might fail again, but you go, well, I know God could have done it because he did it in the past. And then you start walking with him enough and you go, more often you go, God, I'm just going to trust you. I don't understand this, but I'm going to trust you. And that's where maturity truly comes in. And that's when people look at you and say, that's somebody that has different. 
they, they honor God as often as they can. Do they fail? Yes, they fail. But you know, even in our failures, when we come and repent and come back to God, that is an impression to them as well. Because they get to see a loving God who cares for us and know that we are going to be trusting God no matter what. Even when we fail, we'll come back to trusting him if we're truly following him. But our failures become less and less and less as we go along. But even as they become less and less and less, we start really realizing how sinful we are because we still recognize that's not, even though I did the right thing, it's not what I wanted to do. Paul said he was the chiefest of sinners. He started really understanding how sinful his flesh was. And there's always this battle between knowing what we're supposed to do and actually doing it. And unfortunately, our mind may know what it's supposed to do, but if our flesh is leading us, we'll do the wrong thing. It's just automatic. Why did I get mad at that person? They really didn't do anything that bad. Flesh. <laughs> My flesh got hurt and I got mad. <laughs> you know, and we know that that's the case. As we're getting mad at them, we're going, oh man, I blew it again. <laughs> if our flesh is crucified and we're walking with Christ and our eyes are on Christ, we might just get through without even having the problem. And the wonderful thing is when you get to the end of a problem and you look back and go, thank you, God, you, you kept me in the middle of this problem. I didn't fail this time. And you look back and say, thank you, and honor him. Bless you, the Lord. Give him that glory. Boast in the Lord. It is wonderful to be boasting in the Lord. Share what God does for you. Let people know. Because he has great blessings that he's going to give you. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you are in charge. Lord, help us to always see who you are and to take our boast in you. Help us to see what you're doing around us. As Blackaby said, to look and see what you're doing and join you. And Lord, we just thank you for that. We know that you are powerful. We know that you love us and care for us. Help us to share that with others. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.